1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network's Middle East Studies podcast. I'm Ruben Silberman, a researcher at Stockholm University's Institute for Turkish Studies. And with me today is Al Bienen, a university lecturer at the Leiden University Institute for Area Studies. He's the author of numerous articles, as well as the recent edited volume, Age of Rogues, Rebels, Revolutionaries, and Racketeers at the Frontiers of Empire, with uh, Ramazan Haki Oztan. And uh, I've noticed this book is now available in Turkish as of this month, as uh, Asiler Devri. But today, we're here to discuss a new book, A Hundred Years of Republican Turkey, A History in a Hundred Fragments, which was edited by Alp and Eric Jan and was just published by Leiden University Press. It's an impressive collection that brings together an array of experts on Turkey to discuss key documents from the past century and reflect on their significance. Now, first, before we get into the various chapters and the insights in them, um, maybe you can talk a bit about the origins of the book. How did you initially conceive and then put together a book uh, this large with this many authors covering this long a period of time?
0: Uh, Thank you, Raymond, for the uh, invitation. Um, So uh, the idea for this book came by, by my co-editor Erick jan Janzerhers in 2019 in the summer in August uh, he wrote an email to Allied University's Turkish studies staff including PhDs and and, uh, and postdocs saying that the centennial is approaching us in 2023 as in four years so we still have good time to prepare an edited volume and this should not be just a uh, just a kind of a typical edited volume it should be something like uh, like a source book uh, where uh, we translate uh, Turkish key texts uh, from uh, from history, and and this should be hundred key texts for uh, for the hundred years. This was the idea from the onset on uh, by Eric Jan. So, and then we started in the in the fall of twenty nineteen. Uh, we started with our meetings, and, and then we started think about okay, how can we conceptualize this book? Uh, and here the um, the initial ideas were. Should we pick like for each year of the Republic from 1923 till 19, uh, 2023 for each year? Uh, uh a source, uh, um, this proved to be something somehow, uh, unpractical because, like, not every year is. Kind of, uh, I mean, there are also some years where multiple events take place, and you have to make a selection and so forth. So we have decided to uh, to be more liberal in that regard. So we decided that we should divide up the hundred, uh, the hundred years into ten decades, uh, with each ten entries. Uh, so and then the question was, okay, how do we fill up the the decades? So um, and here we again we started with more rigid ideas. Uh, we said, okay, every decade should have one, uh, one entry about politics, one entry about society, one entry about economics, one entry about diplomacy I want to about culture gender etc then we see uh, then we realized that the um, that the boundaries of these topics were not so clear cut and and their intersections were way more interesting for us so we decide to be more liberal so let's uh, we said okay let's just collect ideas collect ideas for each decade and then we make a selection to kind of the best possible selection for each decade one decade after another to convince the uh, the Leiden University Press uh, that this is also a compelling idea, we prepared a sample decade with the Leiden team. We prepared the 1923-1932, uh, the first decade of the hundred years, and here we have. Uh, this was very important because here we have decided on a on a uh, on a format uh, on a style uh, that uh, that was very uh, very useful later on because it's it's very complicated book if you want to have hundred. Uh, chapters, short chapters by multiple authors, uh, it is very important that you decide on a, on a, on a uniform style and uniform structure and uniform format. Uh, hence, once we had the sample decade, we and it went back and forth with revision, so we so once we were settled for the style and the structure, then we knew that we had something very good in our hands because, because it was fun to write them because these are like uh, five to six pages each chapter. And each chapter starts with a a background section about the the, uh, kind of a historical background. And then comes the source material, which is in most cases a a textual source, but in other cases also a visual source like a map. We have statistics, we have postcards, photographs, film posters, and so forth. Uh, But most of them are textual, either they're uh, from a letter, from a newspaper, from a memoir, uh, or uh, or song texts, song lyrics, or poems, etc. And there are also fragments. So this we decided also came up with the name of this, uh, the idea that these are historical fragments which we bring together. And once the source is presented to the reader, then there is a, uh, there is a description and interpretation part uh, where the expert author explains the source to the readers. And then the last section is the relevant section where one puts this specific source into relation to to the, let's say, the large larger events that are, have taken place in Turkish history or in global history and so forth. And we finish with uh, the with bibliography of three to six uh, recommended readings, no footnotes, no in-text citations and so forth. So it's like a very accessible text to meant for general readers, for uni- university students at a, a undergraduate level or people simply interested in the history of Turkey kind of wants to read something and wants to hear the kind of the voices of the past and see the visions of the past as they were so this was the idea which we settled on and after that we started uh, uh, inviting colleagues and friends so and we so kind of uh, it started with the Leiden network Erik-Jan Zürcher has think, over 20 PhD graduates uh, uh, throughout his career and we have written to them and and our friends and colleagues in different universities and and uh, and we were very fortunate people were very much interested in this we asked them to just pr- send us proposals so for ideas multiple ideas and uh, and we could have edited a vo- uh, we could have uh, edited a volume with thousand entries so that's not just 100 so we had so many interesting ideas and so many and the difficult part was for us to decide what to select for each decade so uh, and of course, some decades were were very easy to fill. Uh, and it was, let's say, there were many proposals for, let's say, 1920, 1920s, like 20s we had, but 1930s, for instance, was very popular, of course. Uh, uh, but then other decades were more difficult to fill in, or they were like... People came up with very similar ideas, so we had to decide who should write it. And then at the end, once we had the kind of the, and we started, once we started this casting process, we asked them to kind of give multiple deadlines. And then at the end, we still had some gaps uh, here and there. And for this, we asked people to, uh, we had our own ideas uh, to have, oh, this is a missing topic here in the nineteen. Nineteens, for instance, and we should ask this person who's a specialist on this, and we invited, we targeted people for for their ex- uh, expertise to to join the book. So that was the the, the overall uh, overall process, and it forced went with uh, reviews and revisions back and forth. Each entry that was, of course, very laborsome. but overall we were very fortunate. People were very enthusiastic about the project. Uh, we had over we have, uh, at the end we had seventy three authors, including myself and 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 Eric Jan. And which is of course like a large number, but uh, but people were very enthusiastic about the book, and and they had they uh, many of them told us they had fun to write these short entries and uh, which center around the uh, around the uh, source material, and uh, yes, and it was also fun to to read and uh, review them for us. Uh, so that's the overall uh, process.
1: Well, now in the introduction, you write with your co-editor Eric Zürker, Uh, You give some sense of the debates surrounding the Declaration of the Republic of Turkey a century ago, and whether the declaration should be understood as part of a continuity or a rupture with the period that came before it. Uh, For listeners who may be less familiar with Turkey specifically, but are still interested in this book, what are some of those debates? Can you give us a sense of them? Are they still ongoing? Um, How do the pieces in this book fit into those debates? How do they contribute to them?
0: Thank you um uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complicated question uh, I think there are like multiple questions I, I hope I can answer them them uh, each uh, for for readers who are perhaps not so familiar with the, the historiography of Turkey with the foundation of the Republic of uh, Turkey in 1923 as to the collapse of the Ottoman Empire the the, the Republic like many other uh, newly formed nation states crafted its own official historiography uh, and uh, and in this official historiography, of course, the foundation of the republic, the, the, the national struggle, the war of independence, that was the most significant event. Uh, and in order to, to also mark the significance of, of its own virtue of this, this new progressive uh, regime, it, it also distanced itself very uh, starkly from the past and from the ancien regime, the Ottoman Empire. And this was, a, let's say, in a characterized way, so the the Ottoman Empire was was, was corrupt and de- decaying kind of like a Byzantine Empire that is, but it's fallen into Oriental despotism and, and, and uh, conservatism, and it uh, and it, it it had to fail as a multinational uh, empire. It, it wasn't working. There was it was subjected to international intrigues. It was subjected to internal revolts and so forth. So and out of this, at a, at a, at a crisis of survival, the, the Turkish people of Anatolia revolts and so forth and found uh, the Republic of Turkey. That's the kind of the mythological. Narrative of of, of Turkish historiography, um, and since nineteen, uh, especially since 1980s, after the nineteen eighty coup d'etat, which was a very repressive coup, which especially uh, punished the the leftists, but still clocked itself uh, under the, the the label of Kemalism or Ataturkism, as they called it, uh, there uh, emerged a kind of a new historiography that uh, wanted to move beyond uh, beyond Kemalism and and also uh, Against Kemalism in some ways so, and as a new scholarship emerged in the 1980s and 90s, uh, that was very revisionist for that time uh, frame uh, and for the time, uh, we challenged this uh, this official historiography that assumed such a such a strong rupture between the republic and empire. And my Co-editor uh, uh, Professor Eric Jan Zürcher belongs to this pioneering generation of uh, of, uh, of revisionist scholarship, or later called post-camelot scholarship, and this kind of scholarship became more or less uh, mainstream in the two thousands and two thousand ten. So this is so. So we have this kind of uh, and this uh, one of the major arguments which uh, Eric Jan uh, 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 Zürcher. Proposed was the idea of a continuity. He made the idea. This was in his case very specific in the War of Independence. That the War of Independence was not just a single work of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, as it was claimed in official historiography. No, it was actually the uh, the work of the the previous regime of the Young Turks, and which. And he also showed that the Young Turks and the Kemalists were coming from the same political movement. Uh, hence. Disconnected the the republic also to the to the crimes of the Young Turk regime and, uh, mostly of course the Armenian genocide 1915 but also the, the despotism and dictatorship uh, the single party regime of the Young Turks at the end of the empire connects with this continuity to the single party regime of the Kemalist regime the identity politics the nationalization and so forth so. This is like the major dilemma around the continuity uh, and rupture thesis. Uh, but but many scholars also after Zürcher has the continuity thesis has become kind of uh, uh, became more elastic. So those, like uh, uh, everything that happens in 1990s and 2000s, uh, has been commonly explained with, oh because you go back to this this has uh, this goes back to the War of Independence this goes back to the the fault lines of the foundation of the republic and so forth so there has been such an elastic understanding of continuity in recent historiography. This is the the, the, the historiographical landscape where we publish our book and 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 we decided to to start our book. The first entry is in 1923. So and this is kind of against the mainstream uh so because the mainstream scholarship is very important if you look into uh into histories of modern turkey including eric answer own uh turkey and modern history uh, the, the typical college textbook and excellent as such has a very long section uh, I think a couple hundred pages devoted to the late ottoman empire so this has been very common in understanding modern turkish history that you have to look into the late ottoman empire but we decided to start with 1923, uh, and we uh, because our approach is to look into the decades of the Republican history in their own temporality, in their own let's say, look into 1920s as a time frame, look into 1930s as a time frame, 40s, and so forth. So This doesn't mean, of course, that we deny that there is a continuity. Uh, so, hence the the uh, what we have uh, since we start with 1923, we had to come up with a kind of uh, with a background. In our introduction, so in our introduction, this, uh, we have a section on the on the question of continuity. How far the new Turkey was new, how far uh, there was a continuity with the Ottoman Empire, and so forth. So it's a kind of the one of the the debates that we are uh, addressing. And as such, uh, there is of course a great deal of change as well. So this is we have to. So we cannot say we cannot reduce the 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 Turkey of today. To, the fa- to its foundational, uh, let's say, settings. So this is, we cannot, and this has been, I think this has been a common methodological problem in Turkish studies that so much attention has been devoted to the to the foundational period, both by Kemalist and post-Kemalist scholars, that remaining decades have been neglected, or uh, or issues that have taken place later on have been explained by uh, by this, uh, the uh, the origins of the of the state. So, and we are kind of moving beyond this, and we are saying that we are arguing that many of Turkey's episodes are also part of global developments and uh, nation-state formation. The economic crisis second world war Cold War uh, neoliberalism neoconservatism after the end of the Cold War and so forth so and, I, and we we highlight this importance and uh, enhance our our decade structure is also is uh, fits very well into this logic and by bringing together so many scholars and and having a kind of an open process of casting and and, and content creation, We were also able to uh, bring together a picture of the state of the research in Turkish studies. And many colleagues might not even agree on uh, on multiple issues with each other, but they are all uh, subscribing to a critical approach. And as such, we see these very very different approaches to Turkish history and and, and Turkish politics and society and culture uh, throughout the decades. And I think this is one of the the, the, the important contributions of this book, this multivocal design uh, which enables the readers to to to, to look at, to look into the history of the Republic not through a singular linear narrative. So uh, so it's not a monograph. Uh, so it's, uh, it's it's written by over 70 authors who are coming from different specializations, who have different views on different things, and they are presenting source material, which you can also interpret from different perspectives, again, on your own as a reader. Uh, This enables, I think, a kind of an understanding of history that is very much uh, uh, based on the appreciation of its complexity and plurality. This is, I think, very important, and this makes this book, I think, different than than uh, let's say monographs about modern Turkey, but also different than let's say uh, handbooks on Turkey, because it brings together this this uh, uh, this complexity of historical reality that is uh, that is very much uh, part of the book's design, uh, and it's also part of the ex- reading experience for because uh, the reader is reading different fragments. After another, and the, the let's say the totality of uh, of this history emerges only in, in the minds of the reader. So that's uh, I think that's uh, part of uh, part of the book's uh, uh, contributions.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think the the emphasis on fragments is particularly useful, right? Because instead of imposing a single narrative on the hundred year period, you do have these individual pieces that aren't necessarily subsumed, as you say, under any particular narrative, but each which does have its own history, its own context, its own um, connections that can be explained. And doing that doesn't necessarily contribute to an overall narrative, but it gives us this fuller sense of the last hundred years of Turkish history. So I think it's phenomenal in that regard. So, the, so let's, let's focus in on a couple of the fragments then. Um, because you're the one person who's with me, I, let's talk about your fragment first, I, which is a fascinating one as well. So maybe you can tell a little bit about the first fragment that you focused on, how you approached doing it, and um, what you thought your fragment might help readers understand about Turkey. Um, yeah,
0: so thank you. Um, uh, so the first fragment of the book is is the as the proclamation of the republic, so and this, um, this is not a fragment that I proposed, but it was already there in our brainstormings. That and and someone had to write it, and I uh, and I volunteered to write this. And I thought that's kind of because I I figured out that I really didn't know much about it. So the, the document itself, I wasn't really familiar with. So uh, and it's also it is also uh, not well covered uh, in in the historiography. So there's like it's 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 very quickly skipped. How the uh, the republic was proclaimed. Uh, I think you have worked on this as well, if I'm not mistaken. So this is uh, kind of an interesting, uh, interesting, like a micro uh, episode, and uh, but also very, uh, very, very eventful, very formative moment. So I was interested in looking into into this. So and uh what I do here in the first section, I saw I I, I again I uh, talk about the proclaimed the republic was proclaimed on uh, October uh, 29. 1923. And this marks the kind of the end of this transitional period, the end of the war of independence, and new regime is founded, and it's the the kind of the final end of the Ottoman Empire. But then I go back to these questions of continuity, that the young Turks had already had initiated the war of independence. And there was this was not such a a strong uh, rupture. So there were certain continuities going on. And I say that the, the idea of republicanism or founding a republic, was not the driving force of the of War of Independence, neither in so in Mustafa Kemal's speeches and 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 also in the uh, in the parliamentary minutes. So, founding a republic was not a major issue, but something was very central. This is the name name the notion of national sovereignty. Uh, pe- uh, so this was very important and the foundation of the Grand National Assembly during the War of Independence was a very important moment in this regard. So and I described the kind of this or the overall developments uh, and I described the, the kind of the, the cabinet crisis that took place just immediately, immediately uh, beforehand, the proclamation, which Mustafa Kemal very much used for his own, own interest in initiating the foundation of the Republic and very famously uh, he says the night before, uh, gentlemen, tomorrow we will proclaim the republic to his close colleagues. And indeed, the next day, uh, it is, uh, uh, the, the Grand National Assembly decides on this. It is not clear whether the two-third majority was there uh, because the votes are not uh, officially counted, but it, is, but it goes through the parliament. So then I have the translation from the uh, proclamation of the, uh, uh, the republic. Then I go into a, a description of this uh, of this document, uh, and I, I explain that this is not necessarily a foundational document because it's it's actually is, is amendments to the 1921 uh, uh, Law One Fundamental Order, which is considered unofficially the first constitution of Turkey, which it wasn't. It was actually a, an amendment to the constitutional order of the Ottoman Empire. As such. Uh, and I say that the, the, the new idea of the republic resembled very much the Third republic in France, but there were still elements that were continued from the Ottoman uh, constitutional monarchy. So the kind of the president resembled the, the, the Ottoman Sultan. So and I described the kind of uh, other aspects that there's sort of the Islamist state religion in this document still, um, I think it's very important to, it's a continuation from the young Turks uh, to the Kemalist, that Muslim nationalism was the unofficial uh, uh, ideology uh, in uh, kind of shaping identity politics. Uh, then, the last part I went to go, I talk about the relevance of these documents and I put it into first into global perspective that it was a moment of uh, making republics throughout the world, very much inspired by Wilson and Lenin and their call for national self-determination. And multiple republics, uh, also in the Muslim world, were mushrooming in this in this period. And uh, the Turkish Republic was uh, one of the last ones of this. So it was not so very many of the Muslim republics in, in Tripoli or mostly also in, the, in, in Central Asia or, or Caucasus have predated uh the republic of turkey but the republic of turkey remains the long uh longest lasting uninterrupted republican regime in the muslim world as such uh and then i go into how, how far uh, the idea of the republic uh, is still important in and uh, in turkey and i say republicanism has was never really challenged so nobody wanted to go back to a monarchy as such there were no no serious attempts to overthrow the republic in favor of a monarchy but republicanism since it is associated very strongly with kemalism it became a kind of Jumuria chilik and republicanism became kind of uh, very closely associated with kemalism it has it is of course a contested uh, contested term and its debates continue around it but not necessarily uh to to uh, to overcome a republic but uh, different kinds of uh, republics are Part of the
1: debate. Hmm. And I'm just curious as, as a follow up, because you're right. I mean, I, I was interested in it, too. And one of the things that interested me in this, the proclamation, is simply that um, I, I can never get a sense of how well understood the actual history or the event or the document itself are in Turkey, because it's an annual holiday. And this year, or this past year, obviously, was this huge event. But for most people, do the specifics are the specifics known, or is it something else that's being celebrated uh, on this day that people celebrate? Is it the sort of general Republicanism more that you're talking about? Yeah, I,
0: I, you're uh, you're you're right. So this is so. Like I said, like even as a historian of this transitional period, I I had never like came across this, and I've never studied it in my in my in my training as such. And um, so the but the but the Republic Day is a very very important uh, public holiday in Turkey and. And what is celebrated is uh, is not necessarily the events that uh, have taken place in the the closer uh, proximity of the proclamation, uh, but it's of course the war of independence is very important for Turkish. So there's a kind of a, there's a sense of victory there, uh, and there's a, a kind of a new uh, new regime emerges out of the ashes. This idea, but I think there's this uh, I think this this uh, there are these three uh, core Tenets of Kemalism are very important in the celebration of Republic. Uh, one is Ataturk's personality. So this is a, the Republic is very much associated with Ataturk and, and his uh, and his, in, and his initiative and his visions and ideas. The Republic represents, like I said, because of its relation to the war of independence, Turkey's national sovereignty. So it's if you're celebrating the Republic Day, it's also a celebration of national sovereignty in many many ways. Um, and it, for for many uh, for many, it's also kind of something that is uh, that represents Turkey's path to modernity. So this is this is, I think, still very strong. So this is when the Republic is celebrated. You, uh, the whole aesthetics of it, it's, it's very much about uh, the modernity of the, especially in the war modernity, how how it was ima- imagined or the kind of the Belle Époque modernity that is very 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 strong in the in the aesthetics of the uh, uh republic celebrations.
1: Well yeah so all the, all, all the better reason then that you have the actual document you go back to and you look at it specifically so that that I mean, that's makes the that makes it a great way to start the book. Um maybe we could then move from this to a couple of the other uh chapters in the book there's so many too many to talk about in a brief podcast but maybe there's a few you could highlight that you thought were particularly interesting not because they're the best or anything like that but just because they evoke for you what you liked about the book and i uh, think readers might be interested um, as well.
0: yeah i mean i'm just just go through some that i that kind of for me personally uh were kind of impressive or a little bit surprising so I think one of them was the first decade of the chapter three, Echoes of Modernity, Nazim uh, Hikmet's Machinization of Turkish Poetry. Uh, This is written by Petra de Brown, my colleague from uh, Leiden University. Uh, And uh, since I'm more of a political historian and and Petra de Brown is a uh, cultural historian and and a historian of of, uh, Turkish literature, theater and, 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 and performative arts, uh, this is a this is a poem uh and, and it's a very very uh, very odd poem so it's like kind of it has this very particular style so it's there's this trans uh, the translation if I if I may read it a little bit parts Ooh, of it see. it's to ma- to machinize uh track to became an engine is what I want. From my brain, my flesh, and my bones, this comes to attach each dynamo under me, makes me go out of my mind. My tongue with uh, saliva licks the copper threads in my veins, the lorries chase the locomotives. And it's also written in a particular way. Uh, It has uh, three different font sizes, uh, and it has uh, a very particular indents. and I was skeptical about this in a way, uh, not not in a critical. I mean, it's a fascinating, but uh, but it's. Uh, I was then impressed once uh, once uh, Petra delivered this, and of course the kind of a background of of uh, of of Nazim Ikmet, how he goes to to Moscow, and this is I think so, and he's, yeah, he travels through the through through Caucasus and witnesses the kind of this uh, both the industrialization, but. Uh, uh, of the region, and then uh, gets in touch with the Russian experimental theater and uh, this type of similar th- uh, the literary constructivist style of of, of futurist in that uh, in that period in Russia. Now he's inspired by this. And then comes this. comes the uh, the, the poem, and then there is also this kind of this very descriptive uh, analysis of uh, of the poetry, and it's fascinating, and it's uh, so on. It's uh, and then puts it back into connection to both within the oeuvre of, uh, of Nazim Hikmet, uh, but it's also kind of also reflects also kind of this uh, the ideas of modernization as such. Um, so I, I was very positive surprised about this, and it's uh, one of my favorite ones.
1: Yeah, but let me just say that's that that is a great one. I'm glad you mentioned her because I'd I'd taken some notes myself. uh that she has another cha- one later in the book too. Um, looking at the uh, poem that Erdogan in the in the late '90s read and was imprisoned for, and uh, it's this famous uh, allegedly it's this famous Gokalp poem. And I remember going back and looking at the original poem and not thinking it was the same one that Erdogan was reading and always being very confused by this. So she has another chapter where she goes and looks at the actual Golcorp poem and shows that, no, actually, there's a different poem that's mixed up with that one that Erdogan was reading, actually. And yet he says it's Golcorp and there's these reasons why he might say that. So she has a a couple of good chapters in the book. It really gripped me.
0: Yes, yes. uh... Yes, yeah, so that's the, that's the chapter 76 of Minarets and Bayonets, the poem that landed Erdogan in jail. Uh, indeed, he, uh, indeed, she compares the, t- the two versions of the, of the poem. One is uh, the one uh, which, uh, which Ardon read out was uh, Jevat Ernix, the divine army, and not the Zyagokab soldiers' uh, uh, prayer. So uh, that's indeed, and he, uh, she has also another one uh, from the last decade on on tele, uh, militarism in television series. Uh, one uh, one that I really uh, really really like is the uh, is, is chapter fifty three, uh, and this is um, and this is by Kadir Dede. Uh, between modernization and class struggle, arabesque music. This is uh, this is about a certain music type in Turkey, arabesque, uh, that was also not seen very positively by, let's say, the cultural elites uh, of Turkey. Uh, and and here we have a kind of the very very famous representative uh, song uh, from that uh, genre, uh, "Batsim Dünyada" (Damn This World) by Orhan Gencebay. Uh, and this is very, uh, this is very, very interesting because Kadir Dede contextualized this song within the the political uh, struggles of the nineteen seventies. So it's about urbanization, modernization, class struggle. So uh, if I may quote this damn this world, the title, what a shame, what a shame, shame on such a fate. Everything is dark. Where is humanity? Shame on those who serve as slave of a slave and so forth. So so it's uh, uh, so it comes from this very conservative world that uh, that is in the middle of a of a uh, of a changing world uh, and it's a it's a tragic world so people have been uh, uh living in in slums in big cities and and then their culturally connection to the rest of the urban society is uh, is, is not given as such Mr. And it's a a remarkable example, I think, uh, how, again, uh, something, a source like song lyrics can help us understand both cultural history and social history. We are very proud that we have also uh, many entries about uh, minority history and and identity politics as such uh, of of non-Turkish groups, very strongly represented in the book as such. Uh, and the one by uh, Alexandros uh, Lampro, uh, "I am a victim of the capital tax." The voices of Istanbul Greeks. Uh, this is, I think, uh, I, th- I think, was a very remarkable example of kind of uh, uh, the sources that shows this uh, nationalization of Turkey and how minorities were uh, were, uh, were discriminated and subjected to uh, even to to labor camps. So there has been during the Second World War there was the so the so called war, like, is the uh, capital tax. Tax that's uh, meant to for the government to 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 punish those who have been kind of uh, war profiteers allegedly and also gained some some funds during uh, during the war, but it turned into a Turkification campaign and it subjected mostly non-Turkish communities of uh, especially the large cities. And here uh, Alex presenting from uh, Greek petitions. From greek state archives so this is there's like short excerpts from petitions uh, about like how they were victimized and so forth so and this is i think so just read the first one uh it says it's uh, I'm a victim of the capital tax, unable to pay the 6,000 Turkish lira tax. I was expelled from my small tobacco shop, uh, and on the same day, all of my property was confiscated and an auction. I was sent to, to Ashkale, so labor camp. I will skip a description of the life of torment there and restrain myself uh, to describing my current depraved situation. I am exhausted, sick, unprotected, alone, with no job, beridden. So it's, then you have the initials of the person and, and the date, 15 December 1940. 43. And there are there are a couple of such such, uh, and then comes the their discussion. It's also, uh, I think, a very strong entry. Um, I think let's move on to a later decade. The next one I will present is one of uh, uh, Eric Zürcher's favorite ones. Uh, so this is Chapter eighty three uh, by Doan Gürpünar, Barbecues Invaded Beaches and White Turks Cultural War Cultural Wars in Turkey. So, uh, so this is uh, this is from from two thousands. It has a source text from two thousand five. Uh, so it describes the rise of the AKP to power in two thousand two and how this created a kind of uh, a polarization between between secularists. Uh, and uh and, AKP and akp's uh, at that moment were diverse uh, supporters it describes this notion of white turks and black turks as it emerged in the in the political discourse of turkey in that period white turks became a kind of a term that uh, that, that was used for the the elites of the, the republic kemalists and so forth and then uh, the term "Black Turks" uh, was used for those who were the conservative majority of the of the country, who were marginalized by these these uh, these westernized secular elites. So it's kind of this dichotomy of uh, black and white Turks is explained. It's, like, it's a it's cliché, of course, but very, was very popular and very strong in that in that period. And the source text, uh, which uh, which Dawn presents, uh, is is an opinion piece by uh, by author Mine Kırıkkınıt. Uh, so it's about so she's describing the the way from the airport uh, to the city, and it and it goes through these uh, these parts of uh, of, uh, of Istanbul where people are are uh, uh, near the seaside uh, are uh, barbecuing, and and it's a terrible uh, terrible. Terrible sight for her, which doesn't represents the kind of the, the 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 progress of the republic. So, uh, if I may, so it's a uh, quote from it. So the trees resemble smoked meat and and leaves grilled eggplant all along the road on the shore. The commuters would only encounter barbecues because they line up at eye level. The grass that stretches for kilometers on the side of the road on the shore is invaded by these barbecues. Men naked into their underpants lie down comfortably while women in their black burkas and turbans all of uh, all of them clad in hijabs, are busy fanning barbecues, preparing tea, and rocking babies on their feet, turning their asses to the sea, or black uh, people uh, are uh, preoccupied with uh, grilling meats. You cannot come across a single family grilling fish and so forth. So it's a kind of, uh, and it was very, uh, uh, it was a very polarizing uh, piece by that time for good reason. And here, uh, Doğan Durpunar kind of, deconstructs here the, the, the kind of the symbolism and the elements which Kirkconnut is using and and also uh, and then describes how this was debated in in Turkish uh, Turkish uh, Turkish media and how it was kind of representative of the of the cult, of the culture wars of that period. And this connects connects with a, with another piece which uh, uh, Doğan Gürpınar penned. that's a kind of a part two of, uh, of this narrative. This is from the very last uh, 92 puppies, uh, vegans, uh, and cheese culture wars uh, in the age of populism. So that's again, it's a continuation of this, uh, but then again, from uh, from how white Turks are characterized by AKP uh, AKP supporters in the media. So it's the other side of the of the coin.
1: Well, those are all great examples of uh, chapters from the book and uh, the sort of range of the fragments that you have. I guess what I, I'd like to ask us as a follow-up is that you mentioned earlier that you hope this book is, um, you know, maybe used by the general public in addition to students and uh, people like myself who have a background in Turkish uh, studies. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about that, the different groups you're interested in this book reaching and, for example, with students, how you see it being used in the classroom.
0: Um, so, our ambition is, of course, that, that this book should reach general readers. So this is uh, that's the kind. That's how the language is, uh, how we crafted it, uh, how we planned it and designed it. Uh, but this is, of course, uh, this is, of course, ambitious as such. I don't see the book being sold in an airport or something like that. Uh, but if people who are interested in Turkish history and and let's say you travel to history uh, to Turkey or read news about international news about Turkey. I think, and want to learn something about Turkey, want to want to study Turkey's history, I think this is an excellent and very interesting book. If you want to, to, let's say, oh, I will travel to Turkey this summer, let me read one history of Turkey. I think this is a very interesting one. Because I think because it's like this is a book which you can open somewhere in the middle of the book and start reading, uh, Read read a chapter that is five pages long and then say, wow, that was interesting. And you can open somewhere else uh, the book and read the, the, uh, the first next chapter that comes across. So I think that's, that's, a, that's a very strong point of this book that you don't have to read it from cover to cover to get a sense of uh, of the hundred years. So you each each entry, they are micro historical that they discuss the source, but they also connect it to the larger history as such. So you can read the for selection, you can read one, one enter from each each decade, and you still get a get a get a good sense of Turkish history, I think, and that is uh, that is something important. The other, let's say, target audience is, of course, uh, uh, students. Unlike our colleagues in Turkey who are teaching uh, Turkish history or Turkish politics or Turkish society, uh, sociology, culture, Turkey in Turkey. There is, If you teach Turkish studies abroad, outside Turkey, and I'm teaching, for instance, uh, an undergrad class on history and culture of modern Turkey, which I took over from Eric Yan, you need primary sources. You need primary sources to have the students engage with it. I mean, our students in Middle Eastern studies, they are. Uh, some of them are taking Turkish, but uh, their Turkish is uh, not always at the level when they take my class that they can they can translate it on their own. So, so you need, you need such source books and, and and we have source books for let's say overall Middle East history and there are many source books on Israel- Palestine conflict and there are some specifics uh, on, on on Islamism but there there is no such source book on on, on Turkey. So and this was I think this is an, this was uh, this is an important gap we, which we wanted to fill in. But we also didn't want to just publish a source book. So it's because you have the authors, you have the experts who are, who have curated these sources, who are, uh, who are explaining them and and contextualizing them. And that's also, it's also very beneficial for the students. So, and I have in my course, History and Culture of Modern Turkey, this uh, last semester in the fall term, I use this book uh, from cover to cover. So each week uh, we had so 10 weeks we have uh, discussed one decade after another was very very uh, it was very rewarding and, and students loved it. And the assignments they had to do was to come up with the 11th fragment. so, so each, each, each week there was a presentation by a student and they had to come up with with a, with a, with a source about Turkey in, for that specific decade and they had to say something about its background, they had to describe and analyze it and then uh, uh, and then talk about its relevance in the big picture. So that 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 worked quite well and I hope uh, other colleagues who are teaching course in modern Turkey that they also take advantage of this um, semi which corpus which we have prepared with uh, with our 70 colleagues
1: yeah well that's uh, that sounds like a very good way of incorporating it into a class too um well I just wanna I just want to wrap up talking about these different sections with talking about the last section we talked about the first one which you wrote. And then the last one you wrote with Eric onserker about uh, this whole Turkey uh, branding name that's been being used the last few years and it's a it's a fun piece I thought maybe it'd be interesting to end on that and uh, talk a little bit about what is what is going on with the term Turkey being now the official name of Turkey apparently or there's some ambiguity. Perhaps you could tell us uh, about that.
0: Yes. Uh, so we uh, so we decided early on that we that we didn't want a conclusion. So so it should end with the with the hundredth entry. So, uh, but uh, then the question was okay. Then the hundredth entry should, cannot be just something that is, let's say, something mundane or you no know, something that is. Uh, it should be something significant, something lasting. And uh, and Eric Jan uh, and I've decided that we should take uh, take this responsibility. So we reserved the last entry for us. So we didn't we didn't allocate it to 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 uh, other colleagues and so forth. Um, but we were very, for a long time we were undecided, and it was the very last entry that uh, so we had, uh, we had we had made a full vision about the rest of the book, and, and and many entries were already reviewed and revised, and we had to and it was already. 2023, so we were in the early months of uh, of 2023, uh, where we had to to now finalize the book and submit it, and and, and it's and it was there that we have uh, we were still looking for ideas, and I thought, oh, we have the we have the elections in May, uh, let's write something about this historic elections, and uh, and there uh, Eric Jan uh, he had a better uh, he's more experienced and has better instincts for church politics than I do, uh, perhaps he said no no that's that's too risky we, we don't know what will happen so uh, and uh, in a way that was good advice of course uh, so um, so we so we talked about what topic could be there could be the last one and and then uh, i came up with this idea of the name change so I think now it's everybody has heard about this that turkey has declared that its international name should not be turkey in english turkey or turkai uh, no, it should be Turkey as it is written in Turkish. So that's the main idea. And they uh, they proclaim this also at the United Nations level, so it's officials so, uh, so ambassadors throughout the world, they have to call Turkey, Turkey. And yeah. that's now already a reality. Um, so we have, uh, we've talked about this, about the name of Turkey, where it comes from, uh, and that's like, how, and how far the Ottoman Empire was also a turkey or uh, so we have talked about this, and then how the new Turkish Republic adopted this name, that that it was for the first time the country's external the name that it was known externally it was the same name as its official name. So because it was for a long time, Ottoman Empire was called Turkey. Now with the Republic, it it itself called uh, it was uh, it called itself uh, Turkey, although. People were very, very proud about the, the, the name of the country uh, with the globalization of English uh, in, the, in the last decades of the 20th century became kind of a problem uh, as, um, as because of this, uh, this uh, lexical ambiguity that uh, this bird from uh, America uh, is called Turkey in English. Uh, and, and, and this was a problem for Turkish nationalists in the 1990s, uh, that this, uh, uh, this was embarrassing that uh, uh, no, Turkeys as birds are also characterised uh, as clumsy birds. And there was a petition in, in, uh, in, in 1990 to change the English name of the country to Turkey, and, and the Turkish Language Association also supported this, but this was, this was forgotten for a long time. And it's uh, Erdogan's uh, uh, that Erdogan came up with it in in 2021. Nobody expected it. This was uh, this was something kind of mostly forgotten, and it was a uh, it was a presidential declaration in the official gazettes, which is the source which we are presenting. Yeah, but it's a uh, uh, type Erdogan. And then we 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 analyze the language of this of this declaration, and it's a language that is it's mostly about the use of the term in Turkey itself. uh, What uh, President Erdogan wants, so that uh, we, the Turkish official uh, bodies, uh, ministries, they should use. The term Turkey when they write in uh, foreign languages because Turkey is a brand, and so it's this kind of idea of uh, Turkey as a brand, and we should use uh, "Made in Turkey." Turkey, he says, uh, instead of "Made in Turkey" for our uh, for the export products and so forth. So, so it has a language of neoliberalism that is very very strong in this uh, decision. Uh, but then uh, we also talk about how uh, the, the foreign minister by then, Mayor Çoczoldo, also, uh, also send this official letter to uh, to United Nations and making it official. And we talk about uh, the other elements of it. there is a kind of reference to, to the, the ancient history of Turkish statehood, which goes back to millennia or something like that. It's As it is referenced, this is, of course, coming from this, the, the alliance of the AKP with the Milliyet-Yaroket Party. Uh, in recent years, so kind of we have this Islamist imperialist uh, nationalism combined with the pan-Turkish uh, nationalism, and this also reduces the the republic uh, to a kind of a one out of many other Turkish states. So it's, it reduces the importance of of the republic, the state acronym which was everywhere throughout Turkish uh, official government buildings. Tej the TC that this has disappeared also from records and, uh, and registers and, and only Turkey is used. Um, and I think this is also kind of shows the, the clash of the AKP with the Kemalist notions of republicanism and the, the importance as it is. This is something which we talk about, now, but we also come back to the kind of the overall relevance of this uh, name change. And it's um, beyond that it shows national, neoconservative nationalism and, and, and neoliberal capitalism. Many countries have changed names for, for different region, reasons, but it's uh, in the case of uh, Turkey to Turkey, this is really not clear What what is the motivation. This is because this is not a colonial name that is given as such. It's not out of uh, nationalism, nation building as the change from Persia to Iran or something, or the North Macedonia debate. So that's... Uh, the 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 reasons remain elusive, and 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 I I believe that the 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 the, the poultry issue is still underlying there, but it's uh, but it's certainly that that AKP w- w- wants to uh, um, wants to shape a certain legacy, uh, and I, they're very eager about this, uh, that it it represents AKP's broader strategy to 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 shape a new Turkey, and this is one way to do it. So that's exciting and and it's so very very uh, internationally, at least, very effective uh, way to do it. Even if it's many people don't use it in their vernacular language, official language, it's, uh, it has already, uh, it's a reality.
1: I must say, the uh, as you say, the poultry issue, as someone who uh, uses Google Scholar a lot, it's certainly a major problem with uh, searches for uh, a- t- academic uh, papers and things, the, the term turkey sometimes. I get a lot of uh, medical <laughs> and... Uh, Agricultural research papers when I do searches for things, so this might be a positive change in that regard, at least.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So there's, I mean, it's, it's it was certainly an issue with with the digital search engines, and it has been, uh,
1: yeah. But I I had hoped that
0: I, I, AI would solve it instead of a official name change, but yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I and I don't think the ministry, uh, the foreign ministry, is uh, making the decisions based on what's an, annoying me as a researcher, unfortunately. So yeah. <laughs> Nonetheless, so, so the last thing I wanted to ask you was we talked about the book, and I just wanted to ask, since so I have you here, um, to, to ask if there's other projects you're working on now, because this book's out now. Like I said, a previous edited volume of yours I've seen is now out in Turkish. Uh, but what sort of projects are you working on now? Um,
0: I, I am uh, overdue with uh, with, uh, with finishing my, uh, my PhD book. So that's a success. long time in the making. I have been, let's say, been... Uh... Uh, I've been occupied with these edited volumes, which I enjoyed a lot. But I'm now uh, coming back to my my own monograph, which is um, uh, the working title is the Young Turk International. It's about the 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 the, the Committee of Union and Progress, the Young Turks during the War of Independence, but their international and transnational relations, how uh, the last Young Turk uh, government uh, fled uh, into uh, exile in Germany, and then uh, how they went to Soviet Russia and so forth, and how they have. Kind of tried to shape uh, international politics during the the peace settlements by uh, forming an, an an Islamic international and failed in doing so. And I'm and by their story. I'm trying to explain the the emergence of this uh, new world order from the perspective of the losers. Uh, so I am nearly finished with it. So I have the the last two chapters are in draft form, which I have to uh, finalize and uh, and submit. So that's the uh, the major thing that I have. But other than this, uh, I have I have been also working on on the Cold War periods uh, for a time. Uh, I've I've published uh, smaller uh, smaller articles uh, on. I'm um, interested in the 1970s, the uh, left right wing clashes uh, and the 1980 coup d'etat. How the 1980 coup d'etat is in relation with the Islamic Revolution in Iran and the, uh, the Lebanese Civil War and so forth. So these are the more bigger questions that that uh, that will pursue me uh, uh, in, the, in the in the next uh, years or more. But, uh, but I, I first need to finish my book. Uh, that's uh, and I'm looking forward to it.
1: Well, I mean, if it's I, I've, I've read articles that are of yours that are on that topic, which are great. So I'm sure the book will also be great once it's out and uh, I very much look forward to it. And uh, thank you for talking with me today about this book. Thank you, Ruben, for the invitation. It was a joy.